0: This is the Filmlinks Podcast World Tour. A special summer series where we explore filmmaking from around the world. Yeah, Jonathan. Yeah,
1: Alex. <laughs> Russian ruminations. Ooh, another language in the books,
0: another country traveled to with movies. Absolutely. And another country that has had some pretty fundamental innovations in the way that we watch movies. Right, right. And technically, we're going to be talking
1: about films that were all made um, by filmmakers in the Soviet Union, which is not exactly the same thing as Russia, but can basically be considered the same thing as Russia. So don't don't bother us with technicalities. <laughs> we're, we're just calling it Russian, Russian films. Um, and that's how it's considered in the popular imagination.
0: But it is called Soviet Montage. Right, so that is one of the major techniques that comes out of Russia. So just brief history, and again, we have another crash course about um, Soviet montage and the editing techniques that come out of uh, Russia that I'll include a link to. But basically, for a long time in Russia, there was no uh, film stock. So filmmakers or people who kind of had an inclination towards film basically had to just spend their time studying films that were made in other countries and literally pick them apart and cut the film reels and stuff like that and see what happens if you put these shots together and what happens if you put those shots together and essentially started creating all of these theories because they were thinking Um, through the way that editing is done, maybe more than even the filmmakers who had made the films in the first place had done. They were just thinking, here's a sequence, we'll shoot this and then put that after it and that after it. And these Russians are like, okay, but what if we take the same shot and put a different shot in between them? Then it changes the whole meaning of the two shots combined than they would have uh, on their own. And so all of these film theories start being developed Right,
1: right, and this leads uh, to the foundation of the first film school ever, and it had a really complicated name because it was state-sponsored, and it was actually created to help generate propaganda for the state, so it had some complicated, um, communist-sounding, official, proper name, but most people just called it the Moscow Film School. Um, And this was the first film school in history, and it housed the first film theorists in history. Among them, uh, perhaps the most important early film theorist, and definitely the first, uh, Lev Kuleshov.
0: Right, and we did actually mention the Kuleshov effect before, all the way back in episode two of our podcast, with Jarmusch's Broken Flowers, Um, but we'll be getting way in depth with it today today. Um, and also talking about the ideas of montage and we'll mention Kinoai, but we don't have necessarily any films that go into that one, but those are all these techniques that come out of, uh, the Moscow film school and, um, the, the other film theorists around Kuleshov in the early twenties in Russia.
1: Right, right. We just don't have time to fit a Verta film. In our podcast, but it's not for uh, any reason other than a plethora of good choices. Every country we've been to so far, there's just been too many good choices, um, and it's take it take it as an introduction. That's what we're trying to do here, and these are. Uh, three of the best uh, filmmakers in Russian history, if not ever, um, and we we don't think it'll disappoint. Uh, our first film we're going to be talking about is Battleship Potemkin from 1925, which is j- j- super communist. But anyway,
0: um, <laughs> it was directed. It's also extremely famous, probably the most famous Russian film. Yeah, ever. It was one of the most famous films ever.
1: It was widely considered uh, the best film ever until. Um, Citizen Kane came along and claimed that title. Um, although, yeah. you know, that's all subjective. <laughs> but it was directed by Sergei Eisenstein, who also was a giant communist. And um, I don't really have an opinion on that, but uh, good for him. Anyway, he uh, based this on a real life event in 1905, I believe, in which actual sailors actually revolted on a ship. um but he uh, propagandizes the event for sure. And he does that by using his uh, favorite technique, his favorite film theory, montage, which we're going to be covering in depth throughout the podcast today.
0: Yeah, and Sergei Eisenstein was briefly a student of Lev Kuleshov, who we've been talking about, and we wanted to pick uh, one of his films to talk about, and we found "Po Zakonu from 1926. Uh, Its American title is By the Law, Um, and it's based on a Jack London story called The Unexpected. And we learned that the film theorist can really put his work where his mouth is, because we both really liked this film, and we had never heard of it before. Certainly. I think the number one thing anybody's ever
1: seen by Kuleshov is his uh, Kuleshov Effect Experiments and right. you know let's let's see those in effect let's see uh, let's see the film theorist at work and this is a great opportunity of it it's sadly not spoken about as much as we wish it was um, and we're going to try to rectify that a little bit today even if it's just you guys and I don't mean that in a diminutive <laughs> way I mean that in a loving way um, but the last film we'll be talking about today is Stalker from 1979 by the Andrei Tarkovsky um, the big Russian poet of the modern era And it's based on a novel called Roadside Picnic. Um, Imminently weird and almost psychedelic, maybe? But we'll talk about that later. (laughs) Anyway, um, widely considered to be the greatest Soviet director since Eisenstein, and by many to be one of the best directors ever, if not the best director ever. Um, His uh, work, and especially Stalker uh, is a rejection of the montage theory, as well as most film techniques that have ever been around. So it'll be a nice little in cap on our story, the student, the teacher and the rebel.
0: Right. So let's get into it. First up, we have Battleship Potemkin from 1925. And as you already stated, this was based on a real event, a real, uh, kind of uprising on this ship but basically what it is is it's about a group of soldiers who are being uh treated unfairly their their food on this ship sucks uh and you know their officers are just trying to kind of making them eat it they're saying oh those aren't worms they're just maggots just brush them off and it'll be fine um so they end up uh revolting and taking over their ship and then they come up to port and they're like hey we've We've taken over from the man. Uh, and so all the people on the shore get all excited and start helping them. And then soldiers come in from the shore and start massacring people. Um, and so when all this starts happening, then the ship, newly stocked up, uh, kind of goes back out to sea and ends up facing um, the, the government's fleet. And I won't say what happens after that, but uh, it's very stirring Um, Very pro-communist because, again, we're in Soviet Russia, and this is a government-sponsored film. So, uh, But it's incredibly famous, incredibly stirring and rousing, uh, and a great use of editing from people who have just spent a lot of time thinking about editing. And those sailors on the ship who revolt, um, they
1: revolt at a point where a few of their comrades are set to be executed for refusing to agree that they are satisfied with the borscht. Um, and it, it's a very dramatic scene, but it, it is over a very uh, pitiful thing. And the whole thing is arranged to the point where the the, the sailors and the rank-and-file enlisted men are very sympathetic, and the officers are... Very, very um, awful. They're tyrannical, in fact. Um, yeah. And this is this is uh, the heart of you know propaganda filmmaking, obviously. But beyond that, this is the use of film techniques to uh, reach a desired effect, and a big part of that is the idea of Soviet montage.
0: Yeah, and we're probably gonna be talking about uh, propaganda at least a little bit, at least through this discussion and the next one. But when we're saying propaganda, propaganda is just literally filmmaking that has a bias. It's not completely an unbiased. We're not seeing the side of the officers and the side of the soldiers and stuff. We're saying the officers are essentially the bad guys and the soldiers are the good guys. And so, I mean, that can come from any direction. Like Americans made uh, propaganda films throughout World War II, like Frank Capra's Why We Fight series, which was to help. Uh, soldiers become encouraged to enlist and to help the cause. So propaganda is not necessarily a negative uh, word per se, depending on, you know, what side it's coming from, but it often has a negative connotation to it. You can consider Casablanca
1: to be a propaganda propaganda film, um, but that doesn't take away from its merits as a film either. Like like it's definitely still a very good film. And like you feel yourself being sympathetic towards these sailors because they're they're depicted in a very, um, a very sympathetic light, and uh, it's you know it's it's subjective in the sense that the filmmaker is subjective, but it's not subjective in the sense that we're sinking into these characters' minds because going along the the thought that this is a propaganda film designed to promote um uh communist ideals I mean heck it was commissioned by Lenin to celebrate like the 20th anniversary of the actual event depicted in the film um which yep. was held to be like proof that the uh, common soldiers and sailors would go along with um, an uprising, which at that point the uprising and revolution had already happened but i don't know once you're in power sometimes you still like making (laughs) propaganda i don't get how it works i'm not a politician i just like watching movies um and on the subject of movies uh this is an interesting one because we're so used to having like a single protagonist or like a single or a group of individuals as a as a uh as a protagonist but this one you don't really have that um you have a couple characters who are singled we do have out one um there's one sailor yeah. who's like an agitator um but he's really just around m- to martyr. be a martyr i think like he's not really like we don't get into his uh his mindset other than like his mindset is the same as all the other soldiers mindsets and he is um, the mouthpiece for the soldiers in this film, um, and I keep saying soldiers. I mean sailors. I, I'm sorry, because um, the soldiers in the films are the one who are, who gun them down on the Odessa steps. Um, apologies, but um, the sailors are all depicted as a group, and and the citizens in the town are also depicted as a group. Like they act as a group, and um, if it's it's almost like a mob. But I don't think it wants to be depicted as a mob. I think it wants to be depicted more sympathetically than that.
0: But they're yeah, the the groups of people like the sailors and the citizens are portrayed as a group of individuals, whereas the soldiers and the captains on the ship are more like a, a hive mind or a mob, because when we're seeing the um, and we, we should talk about some of the specific ways that we get a sympathetic viewpoint from the protagonist. So on the Odessa step sequence, which is incredibly famous, um, sequence, uh, in which the soldiers come, uh, up to the pier or whatever, and just start gunning people down on this, on this big stairway. And, Yeah, it goes on for a really long time. Like I had seen clips from it before, but I don't think I had seen the whole thing before. And it's really brutal, especially for a film coming from 1925. But the way that the shots are uh, put together is we get wide shots of the soldiers or shots of their feet or their guns, but not faces. And then we're seeing a lot of very individualized shots of the citizens. We're seeing, you know, a baby carriage falling down the steps uh, famously we're seeing a close-up on people's faces screaming we're seeing a close-up on a boy's hand as it's stepped on and trampled on um, so it's that contrast of very intimate personal shots of our protagonists versus distant and um you know un not distinguishable shots of the soldiers that really kind of throws the bias of the film one way or the other.
1: In effect, the, the protagonist is the proletariat. Um, again, I'm trying, I'm trying so hard to not dive into political theory. Um, but I got to use some vocab, I guess. So yeah, the proletariat is the protagonist and uh, yeah, it's communist propaganda film. So yeah, that makes sense. Uh, yeah, that's what we're going to go with. Um, the The proletariat <laughs> is the protagonist of Battleship Potemkin, and they act in they act in unison, and they they rile each other up. And you're right that they are um, singled out here and there as individuals, and that makes them feel more human. Um, but again, there is there is no um, one person's emotions that we get involved in, like in like we talked about so many times in uh on this podcast with subjective filmmaking where we dive into a character's head and we dive into their perspective and even going back to last week like uh dr caligari the cabinet of dr caligari where you're the the whole film is basically exploring the psyche of our protagonist um you know in in battleship potemkin instead of uh exploring the psyche of uh, a singular protagonist you're exploring the psyche of the proletariat um which is expressed as this mass of people in the town and the sailors on the ship who are downtrodden and everyone is, um, near excessively awful to them. Um, like it definitely is suffers like propaganda in the sense that, um, yes, a rebellion was put down in 1905 on in, in Odessa, but it wasn't as bad as it is depicted. Um, And and we should talk about that depiction because that's what we're talking about when we're talking about Soviet montage, like uh, like the idea of intellectual montage, which is what um, what uh, Sergei Eisenstein, I think, personally loved the most and what he
0: defined um, as as a film theory. And we should probably, uh, you know, define there are different ways to do uh, there are different theories of montage, I guess um, that we should talk about because we're going to see different ways that they're put together in each, in all three of these films. And you can see them in every film. If the film has, you know, more than two cuts, that's basically a montage regardless of how, how long they are. Um, so there's five methods. We don't need to go into all of them, but I'll leave a link in the description, uh, that kind of goes a little bit more in depth on that. Um, But what you were talking about with intellectual montage is basically the idea that if you're putting one shot and then another shot that is different, so they contrast each other, then, you know, making the connections between those creates a synthesis and, you know, essentially brings a, a bigger meaning to the two shots when put next to each other than they would have on their own. So, for example, a shot of a soldier walking, and then cutting to a shot of a boot stepping on a child's hand, makes both of those shots, you know, more impactful because now we're associating the soldier that we just saw with the boot that is stepping on the child's hand, um, and that's what we see in the Odessa step sequence. We see that, and we see, you know, shots of a, a woman's face screaming and a baby carriage falling down the stairs cutting back and forth um and you know there are just endless examples in this film uh because it's all building up this idea soldiers bad as you said proletariat good essentially
1: in that odessa step sequence uh the effect of the the montage of the effect of the intellectual montage in particular of combining these shots to um uh create a intellectual or emotional reaction within the viewer um, is, is to convey this message that the proletariat, the the people are being oppressed by uh, the soldiers, which represent um, the the Tsarist regime in uh, Russia in 1905. So, so you put together those shots of soldiers marching tall and strong, and you don't see their faces. And then you see, um, uh the 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 uh little boy whose hand gets step on stepped on and he gets trampled to death and the woman who gets uh who suddenly has a bullet hole in her eyeglasses and it, her face is bloody and the woman whose baby rolls away from her in a baby carriage down the steps and you put that all together and you get um you get soviet montage you get this idea that uh these people are being oppressed and what we're talking about here this may sound really st- like just banally obvious to you um, and I hope so because this is the fundamentals of filmmaking yeah, like this yeah. is this is the the basics the scraps and this was happening in the 1920s like we were talking about and people like you know DW Griffith in the United States a contemporary were figuring out this at the same time but they were figuring it out in an uh, intuitional way. And maybe we'll get around to talking about that some time on the podcast. But, you know, these these people are unique. These uh, the people at the Moscow Film School, because they sat down and they figured this out. They were like, this is how you create meaning between two shots. You know, this is how you uh, convey messages through the, the magic of filmmaking. And this is the whenever you talk about movie magic, I think most people talk about VFX and uh, CGI and big explosions and creating Spielberg dinosaurs um, or dinosaurs yeah. in the cockpit of an airplane or whatever but um, but really this is the most basic kind of mu- movie magic and if n- probably the most impressive because we've become so used to it that we don't even recognize it anymore so you may think that this form of communication is just obvious but it had to be figured out too um, because film was new at one point and it had to be figured out, just like how people figured out how to write and make words and use symbols to convey phonetic sounds and so on and so forth. And that's where we are this week. We're in the basics, the the basement of filmmaking, um, the foundations.
0: And, yeah, that's something that I kind of wanted to... Uh mentioned last week or that I was thinking about after we talked about Germany is that I don't know how much we stressed the fact that when we're going back to the 1920s like you said we are at the point where these basic tools of cinema the cinematic rhetoric that we talk about a lot are being developed they're being forged in these films um and so these things hadn't been seen or hadn't been thought of yet. And now they are just the basic atoms of a film, the basic building blocks that you need to make any movie whatsoever. Um, I mean, but there are things that are so basic that we don't even like from such a young age, we are kind of inundated with all of this media and all of these things that, I mean, we could never imagine the Lumiere brothers showing, a video of a train going past the camera, and being afraid that we were going to be hit by a train. Or I read a part in Louis Bunwell's autobiography where he talks about the first time that they ever saw uh, a shot that they used a zoom lens to zoom in on a person's face, and it was just terrifying to them because the face was getting bigger, and they didn't know how that was happening. Um, and so it's like all these things that are just like, what? How? How would you not know what was going on? Because they're just second nature to us, but. These things all had to be figured out. And if they hadn't been, uh, if it weren't for these people that we're talking about um, this week and last week, then, you know, we we wouldn't have movies the same way that we have them now. That's the thing to remember about a film like Battleship Potemkin and
1: why it's so important to study and why going into a sequence that is so um, famous as the Odessa step sequence is important to look at. Is because this is the first intentional expressive use of those those basic most basic grammars. Like, what did the first people who came up with words say? You know, what are the first people who figured out how film works, um, like really works in the way to convey a larger message? And the the feeling definitely comes across in Battleship Potemkin. Like, you know, you feel sympathetic for the for the sailors, and you feel. Uh, sympathetic for uh, the people who are being gunned down on the uh, Odessa steps and you hate the oppressive officers and the czarist regime behind them. Um, and it works, even though, you know, we're we all live in uh, 21st century America. And this is, you know, again, almost a 100 freaking years old, um, about a vent yeah. over 100 years old. Um, about a country and a rev- revolution that no longer exists, you feel sympathy for it and you feel connected to them. And this is uh, the the place where you go to uh, figure out how stuff like that is done. And you, you see it and uh, you, you realize how it works and you learn from it, much like the Moscow Film School people did. And then you go and put it in your own work.
0: And a couple other things Uh, that, you know, are used in this film just to keep bringing up these techniques that make it, uh, you know, a subjective uh, point of view from the soldiers is there's a point where, you know, they're the officers on the ship are about to execute a certain group of of the sailors. And then we see a shot looking up as they're thinking about this because they're basically given an ultimatum, you know, eat your crappy food or uh, we're going to shoot you. And so then our, our martyr protagonist looks up at the, the masts, I guess, of the, of the battleship and he sees he, we kind of fade on to a bunch of silhouettes of bodies hanging from them and then we fade them off. So it gives this very ghostly feel. And the fact that we're contrasting that with our character looking up there, we're seeing his point of view and we're seeing what he's thinking through that juxtaposition. Um, and then the other, the other one is just the, the simple close up of the maggots on the meat because they show you that very clearly and it is really disgusting. <laughs> um, and then the the ship doctor is just like, oh, you know, just just wash it off. It'll be fine. And you're like, what? I'm not touching that. Um, so those are just things that are used. And, you know, like Roger Ebert, one of the most famous film critics, uh, has gone through this f- film and, you know, dissected it frame by frame because it's still that effective and it's still that important for people to know about and it's also just interesting that uh as we talked about is a propaganda film it was sanctioned by the government to commemorate this revolution and yet all of these things that Eisenstein did and put them together so well was almost too effective like it made people in the theaters like get up and you know want to start a riot because that's what the movie is about and he had stirred up so much emotions in them that the government actually censored the film after it was released because it was just making too much of a stir and i think that's just so ironic you know the government wants this film this great uh this great celebration of this revolution that happened and then it starts creating its own revolution and they're like oh no no, no calm calm down guys <laughs> so, right that's a uh, that's what you get in communism. Right,
1: right. Montage is so powerful; it foments revolution. Um, just remember that, yeah. folks. Speaking of Roger Ebert, um, I know I spoke last week a little bit about how different it is to experience silent films nowadays, partially because they were just non-standard. Um, non-standardized you know the film was always different um in condition the score was already always different in content um and the viewing conditions were always always radically different um and you know to watch them nowadays you don't know what music has been edited behind them you don't know um what condition it's in who's changed what intertitles how the films decayed uh yada 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 um, but, you know, going back to that Roger Ebert review that we spoke about, that we're speaking about this week. Um,
0: and I'll leave a link to that in the blog post. Yeah,
1: he shares his experience of watching Battleship Potemkin in a little tiny town in, like, Michigan or Wisconsin or somewhere in the Midwest. Um, and it's played with a really, really well-done score that emphasizes the filmmaking. Um, and as he, he speaks about it in his uh, in his review... Um, works as a collaboration with the film rather than an accompan- accompaniment. And it works really well. And he said he felt the effect of the film um, in that viewing, in that park, with that live band more than he ever had watching it anywhere else. Um, and I, I just think it's really interesting to, to see how he describes it. Um, and I think it's also important to keep that in mind while you're watching these silent films is that we're watching them 99% of the time in terrible conditions. Like I watched Battleship Potemkin on my laptop and I guarantee you it was not the ideal condition to do it in. Um, granted it had the score from Criterion, which, um, you know, it's going to be 90 better than 90% of the scores out there. But
0: uh, yeah, which I think was in collaboration with Moss film, which is the big Russian, um, uh, film studio that Battleship Potemkin and Stalker both come out of. So it is a fairly standard score as far as um, digital prints nowadays. Yeah, as
1: standard as you're going to get with a uh, with a silent film. Um, and most film was pretty much the um, analog to Ufa
0: over in Germany. Um, and still kicking, yeah. interestingly enough. But to kind of go to a different film that's a little bit less standardized because... You know, we could find very little information about this film, surprisingly enough, like anywhere. The Wikipedia article is surprisingly short, Uh, but by our favorite film theorist, Lev Kuleshov, Po Alex, tell us uh, what this film's all about.
1: So Po Zakonu, or by the law in English, um, was a film by Lev Kuleshov, and essentially a challenge to himself to see what he could do on a limited budget in a limited location with a limited set of actors. Um, And he basically made Proto Hateful Eight. Um, (laughs) A little bit. A little bit. Uh, And the story covers uh, five people and a dog who are exploring the Klondike uh, Gold Rush in the Yukon of Canada slash Alaska Um, slash, I don't remember if Alaska was a point of the U S at this point. Um, but anyway, they're up in the really, really cold part of North America looking for gold. And eventually they hit it rich, but one of their team members, an Irishman is not treated very well by the others. Um, and eventually he snaps and kills two of them. Um, and the other two, a married couple conveniently for us, um, are left with him in, in their custody uh, and stranded very far away from any kind of what you would call civilization, um, where a law officer or a court or somebody with some kind of official authority would be available to deal with this problem. Uh, so the question becomes, what do they do? Do they risk being stuck with this guy, waiting out whatever kind of natural disasters prevent the law to, from getting to them? Um, you know, have keep this murderer in their midst? Um, do they try to forgive them? forgive him since he was their friend at one point. Uh, do they kill him to save themselves the trouble? Um, and it's a big moral dilemma as well as a really well um, constructed and directed um, what the TV show community would call bottle episode of a movie where yeah. everything basically hap- takes place in one one place. Like they, they leave the cabin once or twice,
0: but for the most part, it all takes place in the same cabin. I was – yeah, I was surprised – at how much I liked this film, given that, you know, we've been talking about all these film struck movies, and I know we both follow a lot of people on Twitter that talk about all these old movies and stuff. And I'd never heard of this movie, and nobody had ever talked about it, and yet it was so good. It was like in the ranks of an Alfred Hitchcock film or something, because it's basically a crime thriller. Uh, and I could actually see the exact same plot being made today, um, you know, with sound and everything, but. I actually think that even the silent version of this holds up to a lot of these kind of, um, you know, modern crime psychological thrillers. I mean, it didn't feel all that over the top. Like we talked about with some of the German films, the acting was actually pretty subdued and or pretty, uh, appropriate at least, um, for what's going on because it's pretty high stress situations. Uh, the, the scuffles that we see, the, the fights are, Brutal, um, and you know, it it really is just a tense, good movie. Not just like, oh, it was a good old movie, you have to give it all these qualifications because it was made so long ago. No, it was just really good. It certainly was, and it does have that kind
1: of um, what one might call proto uh, realistic acting, Um, or maybe I'm just calling that because it sort of reminds me of uh, realistic acting or as realistic as silent film acting got. And apparently, I just like calling things proto-something today. Um, Today, on the Proto-lings. Anyway, I also want to mention that uh, the lead actress in the film is Lev Kuleshov's wife. Not that that really matters for anything, but it is an interesting little tidbit in case you want to
0: pitch it to your friends. Well, it is interesting because she was probably my favorite character. I really liked the, um, you know, the antagonist also, but... She had this really interesting quality in her performance to when she's very stressed, she was terrifying. Like, I don't know if it was the makeup or just like the way her face is when she's stressing it, but she looked really scary. And then likewise, she was also the very uh, compassionate character telling her husband, you know, we shouldn't kill him. We have to do this by the law. (laughs) <laughs> and uh so in those moments she is the softer character and you know she she can put on that air and it kind of it was this interesting uh contrast and dynamic that she was able to bring to the table that you know really kind of seals the deal for this movie because she's such a big part of it i do wonder if um the excellent acting that isn't as
1: a uh, uh, so, shall we say expressionist as the acting we saw last week was um, and by that, I mean just kind of like over the top, like playing to the back of the house, if you will, uh, is a side effect of Kuleshov being the director and Kuleshov being the guy who did uh, the Kuleshov effect. You know, duh. But, he, uh, but, but did he know that he didn't need as much out of the performance uh, and he could get away with conveying meaning via cuts and his montage effects?
0: Yeah, let's let's go ahead and define the Kuleshov effect real quick before we you know get too too far into this film. Uh, basically, the the Kuleshov effect is similar to montage um, ideological montage like we've been talking about, but it's more specific in that let's say we have a shot of a man's face and he smi- he smiles, and the what we put right before that shot drastically changes. Uh, what we perceive as his thoughts and emotions in the shot of him smiling. So, for example, if we put a shot of some a soup, like some food, and we see him smile, then, okay, he's hungry and he's excited that he's about to eat. But if we put uh, a scantily clad woman right before that shot, then, okay, maybe he's got more of a desirous feeling going on. Um, and so you can, you know, ad nauseum change what comes before the shot to change what the next shot means. Um, And this, I mean, has such a wide array of um, applications and is such a kind of basic idea of what it takes to create an emotion from a film. Because, you know, what we think that the man smiling is thinking drastically changes how we think of that man, you know. So if, if we're supposed to be sympathetic to him, then that changes what we put before any shot we see of him. And, you know, et cetera, et cetera. This, this effect is so basic, it, it, it can be applied to literally any any amount of editing. Like I said before, if you have two shots, you probably have the Kuleshov effect acting in some way.
1: So that's why I,
0: I say that might have impacted uh,
1: the acting in this film. Because, you know, most silent acting of that era in all of the science silent era in fact was um you know all of the meaning had to come from the actor because most of it wasn't cut you know you had very long takes uh very perce- you know it was a lot of proscenium staging uh essentially filming like a big wide square of the scene and the actors would do stuff within that and you had to get the feeling uh just from the actors like you would in a play almost um but once you put in this theory of the kuleshov effect and montage and being able to convey meaning by juxtaposing um, what the actor is doing with something else, then you're able to convey a lot more with a lot less. Um, and, you know, that's not to say that uh, the acting we see in uh, Po Zakunu would be considered realistic in modern terms, because we definitely have entered an area of, like, almost hyper-realistic acting. But... Uh, but it's certainly like compared to contemporary fare of the time it feels uh, a lot more grounded and a lot more uh, realistic than a lot of the other acting.
0: And beyond just the Kuleshov effect, we're seeing elements of montage incorporated into this film as well, um, which really helps add to this element that it's kind of a thriller film. It's in it's in this small contained area and you have um, an extremely volatile character and uh, a placating character for lack of a better word and the more aggressive character um all bottled into this one room so it is definitely falls in the thriller category and in order to keep tension high we have to kind of add certain things to get that idea across so for example this is something that is still used today like exactly to create this effect where in the film we see a tea- tea kettle boiling and we're cutting shots of that happening as the two male characters are fighting and so it's literally just kind of a personification of the anger boiling over or uh, or you know coming to a peak and that still happens today nowadays we just add in the element of the sound of the tea kettle whistling and that adds another layer to it um but it's just interesting that you can still get that across in a silent film And it still has the same effect. I would call that an example of tonal montage, um,
1: which is using using a theme to connect two shots, juxtapose one another uh, to enhance the theme and tone of those two shots. So, you know, both of those shots have a feeling of intensity, a feeling of bowling over, um, a feeling of rage almost or anger, and you put them together and it gets angrier um, it gets, it gets more intense. So another example yep. of montage, uh, rearing it's simple, but magical head in this episode of the <laughs> film Mix. There's another,
0: there's another example of tonal montage, uh, near the end where after the climax, which I won't spoil because you should watch this film. It's on YouTube. I'll include a link, etc. Uh, there's a shot of a tree and a, it's just a landscape shot. Um, And they're in the Yukon, so it's pretty barren, kind of wintry wilderness. And there's just a shot of a tree and this empty landscape. And, you know, on its own, it really doesn't mean anything. It's just, oh, it's kind of a pretty shot of a tree. But, you know, within the context of the story, it's very impactful and poignant.
1: I do want to bring up again uh, the, the varied versions of silent films, because we actually watched uh, two slightly different versions of this film this week. Um, kind of on accident, kind of not really on accident, but uh, we both came away really liking the film. And obviously the the picture was the same, but the big thing that was different was the score. And I know you had an interesting experience with that, Jonathan.
0: Yeah, I'll include links to both of the versions um, in the blog post. Uh, the one that I watched had a little bit better quality picture, and that's why I picked it. And I actually had downloaded it off of YouTube and uh, found some subtitles to sync it. So when you watch that one, just know that there's no uh, you know, English subtitles built in on YouTube. But the interesting thing is that it had a custom score, and we had talked about the non-standardization of scores and music and stuff like that uh, when we were talking about Germany. And I actually really liked this one. Like, usually I I would think, like, for an older film, kind of stick with something in the classical vein, something that kind of fits more what would be uh, played in a theater when you would go see it uh, when it was originally aired. But this one I actually really liked. It was kind of this low synthie droning, and it really set up this kind of tense atmosphere. And they had actually gone through and synced up the music points with the video and stuff like that, so... Um, I'll include a link to that. And then the other one is a slightly lower quality uh, print. It has the English subtitles and a more uh, standard kind of what you expect from a silent film uh, soundtrack with lots of piano and stuff like that. And Roger Ebert mentioned, too, that in uh, in the version of Balsha
1: Potemkin that he watched, it was kind of synthy music as well. So the the, the big thing with music and silent films is not necessarily the genre but how well designed the two are to go together. Um, And sometimes you find better uh, versions and sometimes you don't. It's almost like collecting editions of a film, um, which can be entertaining, but it could also be time consuming. Silent film trading cards. Silent film trading cards, (laughs) except they're just sound and imaginary. Um, The hottest new thing for kids. I don't know. Pokemon Go worked. Maybe we can make that work. I can dig it. This wasn't an easy film uh, to film either. you know uh, Kulashov set it up as a challenge to himself um, and it ended up being pretty challenging not only because he wanted to do a film based on the like, freaking Yukon region of Canada, but <laughs> right. so he, he didn't shoot in the nicest time in, uh, in Russia, but he also had like a pretty limited budget and a limited crew and stuff didn't go very well.
0: Yeah, on-location shooting is never easy. I mean, there was a lot of buzz in the film community around the time that The Revenant was coming out about you know how hard the conditions were and all that stuff and how they did all this stuff in the freezing cold and all that. And this film had a pretty similar kind of experience where they uh, uh, you had mentioned a natural, natural disaster that stranded them in their little cabin. I don't think it's a spoiler to say that basically they had been prospecting in the winter... And come springtime, all the ice melted and basically, uh, had their cabin surrounded in water and stranded. And, uh, but their actual cabin that they built for their set flooded. And, you know, there was, the whole set was flooded. All the decorations got wet and everything. Um, and the wiring of the stuff that they were using got frayed. So actors were constantly getting electrocuted, uh, and all this stuff. So it, Yeah, like you said, it was not an easy thing to film, um, but, you know, the rewards uh, were pretty good because they got a great film out of it. The the hardships that occur in the film, or at least some of them, I hope there was
1: no double murder, um, happened during the production. Who knows? Maybe that linked to some of the realism in the film. Uh, Probably. I don't know. I never talked to these people, but it's an interesting thought. All right. Let's get weird. Let's get poetic. Let's get moody. Let's get Tarkovsky.
0: Jonathan, do you want to set us up for Stalker? We've talked about some weird movies on this podcast before, and I don't really want to say the Stalker is weird. Um, but yeah, I think the word you use, poetic, uh, kind of fits the best. It's almost like taking, um, the, the parable nature of Macario and, um, Putting it in this weird Lynchian Bunwellian uh structure. Um so basically, like you said, it's based on a novel, but it revolves around this idea that um something from outer space came to Earth, landed in Russia, and created the zone. That's just what it's called. It's the zone, it's an area, it's not necessarily a thing, it's just this zone. Um, And, you know, nobody knew what it was. And so eventually the military creates a border around it. And um, then rumors start spreading that there's a place in the zone that will grant your desires. Uh, And so there are these people that are called stalkers um, who guide other people through the zone past the military border um, to get to this place where this room will grant your desires. And this is what we're following. We're following one of these stalkers as he takes two people who use the aliases writer and a uh, professor. Um, if that doesn't set it up to be a parable, I don't know what does. <laughs> um, and he's just taking them and we're following them on this journey, but it's not, you know, that's not the most important thing. It's, it's the way that the story is told. It's what Tarkovsky does with color. It's what he does with composition and shot length and, Editing and music, everything is just put together, uh, in a way that creates more of an atmosphere than a narrative. It, uh, you know, the dialogue starts feeding us these different ideas, lots of ideas about art and about, um, morality and about pretty much everything you can think of. And all these images that we're seeing are very evocative and symbolic, uh, and yet there's no, like, necessarily clear thread as to what it all is leading up to. It's kind of this, this hodgepodge of symbolism and metaphor that we're just left to weed through on our own. So it's a really hard movie to kind of describe accurately, but it's, uh, it's definitely one that is a worthwhile experience. So if you don't believe us that this
1: is a rejection of uh, the montage theory. Uh, You know, even though Tarkovsky, I think, literally said that, like, explicitly at one point, uh, that that he he doesn't try to embrace uh, the the style of Eisenstein. You know, at the most fundamental level, montage is about cutting. And Stalker doesn't cut much. Like, they cut, but...
0: But Every the average shot length is over is, a
1: minute long. Yeah, yeah, I was I was I tempted to almost just count how many shots there were because uh, I thought I might be able
0: to get a, get away with using just my hands. Um, there were less than 200 cuts um, in a film that's less than 200 minutes long. So <laughs> it's it's insane. Yeah, yeah, it's it's
1: impressive. Um, but on, on the larger level. I would argue that uh, montage is necessarily about trying to convey something. Um, like, like it is necessarily trying to convey something specific, and that is the tool you use to convey it. Like in Battleship Potemkin, you are trying to say, you know, up with the proletariat, down with the oppressors. And the, the technique is used uh, to that effect. And it can be used more subtly, like we see in By the Law, um... But Stalker isn't really about conveying a specific message. Tarkovsky's whole theory in on art uh, doesn't seem to be, let's convey a specific message. Um, it seems to be more about providing an evocative um, experience and and providing his idea on things to get you to think about your idea on things.
0: Yeah, and, you know... That's all very vague, but it's very hard to pin down these movies because they are built to not be pinned down. They are built to, uh, like we've been saying, kind of present a lot of images and a lot of ideas without, you know, throwing it in our face what it means. Um, and even like if you watch this film, you might come away with it and be like, okay, wait, nothing actually happened or like what was important, um, but basically, like everything is important and yet it's not. I'm, I'm really struggling here because but that's that's what it is. You kind of have to watch the film and it's actually free on YouTube. Um, Moss Film has a YouTube account where they've released a lot of um, Sergei Eisenstein's films and uh, Tarkovsky's films and a lot of other ones, which is actually kind of amazing. That's like Columbia just all of a sudden releasing every Frank Capra movie. Uh, on YouTube. <laughs> um, hint, hint. Wink, wink. Nudge, nudge. Right. But it's it's just a different way of approaching film. It's poetic in the way that when you read a poem, you might have to, you, you will come away with the poem the first time with a feeling, and the more you read it and the more you kind of look into it, you'll get different feelings and different things that you pull out of it. Um, but as you were saying, montage comes down to cuts and the fact that this film does cut and it does compare shots and it does put two shots together um, and contrast them essentially means that basically the whole film is a big montage and this film falls into the category of um, what's called atmospheric montage overtonal overtonal oh oh definitely (laughs) so the whole movie is basically an overtonal montage which is overtonal montage means a montage of sequences of longer sequences. Um, and, and that's what this is. It's, it's combining long sequences of shots and scenes to give a feeling and an emotion. And another interesting thing that he does to compare is, uh, he messes with the colors a lot and sometimes seemingly, um, unsignificantly or seemingly very significantly the
1: color in this film actually really really reminds me of uh the wizard of oz um not not oh that's interesting yeah yeah and it's not in the way it's specifically used within each scene but just in the fact that you go from it you know i i'm gonna just spoil this one technique um in wizard of oz and maybe a couple plot points because it's the freaking wizard of oz <laughs> anyway, no worries. There. <laughs> um, so when Dorothy is in Kansas, both at the beginning and at the end of the film, the the world is in black and white. The film is in black and white. But when she's in uh well, it's Oz, in, sepia. in the middle, it's in color, like bright, like super, like what you might call like disneyfied colors, where the reds are super red, blues are super blue, greens are super green. Everything's really popped. It's all technicolory, um, super colorful. Which is not the same kind of color you get in Stalker, but you do get the same kind of use. Like the world outside of the zone, and occasionally within the zone for a couple trippy sequences, is in like (laughs) this golden sepia monochromatic gradient feel, scale thing. Yeah,
0: high contrast sepia is where I saw it. High
1: contrast sepia. Describe somewhere. Which makes sense, based on just like the guttural texture that uh Tarkovsky uses in like every shot ever um yeah but you know most of the time when we're in the zone we're actually in color and that was that was a really cool moment when we first got to the zone um and my first thought was like oh the zone is like really sincerely special like this is a special place um and my second thought was like did he just do the Wizard of Oz like
0: (laughs) I didn't even think about that because um I've seen Solaris, which is another Tarkovsky film that's also on Moss Films' uh, YouTube channel, and he uses this interesting monochromatic sh- switch in a different way. Um, I mean, I mean, he, he does it still, but it's—I don't know how to describe its use in Solaris because it'll—it's kind of sometimes used for flashbacks, but also not, and it's. Um, He uses two different kinds. One is a blue cast and one is an orange cast. Um, So I was prepared for weird color shifting things um, and I did not go straight to Wizard of Oz, but that is fascinating. And I'm kind of thinking may have been intentional, but also I know Tarkovsky likes to avoid um, doing techniques and things that he's seen in other films. If he thinks about it specifically, he will specifically um, change to uh, avoid you know, being compared specifically to other filmmakers. I
1: think he said that maybe like 20 times over the course of like the two and a half hours of Tarkovsky, just talking about things that I watched this week. Um, <laughs> I'll include links to those. Yeah, too. He just, he has, I mean, he has thoughts on everything. Like he would be a sincerely interesting person to have a conversation about art about, and he seems to enjoy it too, because that's what he does for like two and a half hours in this footage. Um, but, but, yeah, he did try to avoid it. But, you know, that's a thing that all uh, artists and creators do is unconsciously do things. And also, you know, the fact that there's nothing new under the sun. Like, like everything, or almost everything that, you know, hasn't been invented yet. So, I guess there's some things that will be new under the sun. Have... Uh, uh, you know, have been done before. So many things have been done before and you can't possibly know all of them or be aware of what you're referencing at any given moment. And, you know, it's all in your brain, all in there somewhere. You just don't know when it's coming Subconsciously, up. Subconsciously, yeah.
0: Yeah. Diving into the subconscious
1: with stalker. <laughs> yeah, that's
0: appropriate. Um, which makes sense. Which makes sense. Because that's kind of the only way to describe it is this, it's this kind of subliminal... um like we've been talking about, it just gives you this feeling and it, it, it just leaves you with a lot of impressions uh, without trying to explain itself. And that's one thing we, we should kind of talk about is the fact that this is sort of a sci-fi film. I mean, kind of at it at its root, it is a sci-fi film. Uh, just if you just take the, the basic facts of what it is. But in essence, it's not a sci-fi film. This film has pretty much no visual effects. Um, and it, it doesn't, it's not flashy. Like we're in this really mystical place, this thing, this, the zone, which as we go through the film, we get this idea that it has its own, uh, sentience And kind of acts in the way that the Old Forest does in the Fellowship of the Ring Um, book where it it moves (laughs) it moves around and uh, you quoted a study in Scarlet a few weeks ago. I did. I like (laughs) I mean, I like Lord of the Rings, too. I just also like calling people nerds. I mean, I'm a nerd. I use it as a term of pride. Endearment. Yes. But the, the zone moves around and um, the stalker is very like ominous about certain things that they can or can't do because uh, the zone will kill them. Despite the fact that the other two characters do almost all of those things and make it through. <laughs> uh, How would it be an interesting but, movie otherwise? Yeah, but we're doing it's like this very mystical thing. And we've we've been in situations where. We, we have this mystery. We have this very foreboding and ominous mystery going on. We've seen this in American films, but it's always overdone. It's always played up to the top, and then there's always, like, something causing it or something there that's big and flashy and scary or whatever. This film doesn't do that. It's – if you're only used to American science fiction films, you probably walk away with this film feeling very anticlimactic. Uh but that's not what it's about it's about putting our characters in this atmosphere and surrounding them with all of these ideas and then watching them react
1: and that certainly seems to be the appeal of the film cuz if i'm being honest like not a whole lot happens like stuff happens but the amount of stuff you'd normally happen you you'd expect to occur in a film of this runtime doesn't happen. And there's a lot of, uh, like, like you, like we said, really long shots where, you know, characters are walking around and they take really long pauses and look at things and, uh, do things that aren't necessarily, um, you know, can I can I get
0: specific for a second? Cause I feel like we're being really vague. Go for it. So just for, for one example of a very ominous moment, um, that nothing ends up happening. <laughs> from one point of view is we cut the, the characters come to a tunnel uh, and it's very mossy and gross. And uh, basically the, the zone is this kind of wasteland. It's all these um, destroyed buildings and overgrown uh, scenery and like trucks and stuff. Like definitely there were people living here at some point, but part of the story is that anyone who goes there doesn't come back. Um, And so, you know, Everything is overgrown. This is ruins of this uh, city and architecture and stuff like that. So we're wandering through all that and we come to a tunnel, which the stalker calls the meat grinder because only the worthy make it through or something like that. And they've drawn lots to see who will go first uh, because it's a very dangerous situation. And so we slowly watch as he walks through this tunnel. He's very scared. We're very scared. Everything's... And then he gets to this door and then he opens the door and then, I mean, it's just more of the track and we just keep following them. And, you know, nothing big happens. Nothing jumps out. Nothing scares us. We just keep walking through it. And then the stalker says, you were worthy. You made it through or something. Not exactly like that. I don't want it to sound like, uh, um, you know, some kind of Holy Grail kind of thing where it chose him. But it's it's this interesting you know, like I was saying, atmosphere, but that's just one example. And the whole movie flows from that kind of setup and that kind of tone, uh, and it's it's just all like that. But the things that are happening within that, what the characters are talking about, um, what they're doing, what what we think is going to happen versus what actually happens, the you know the changing of the colors and the all this all of these things add to what makes the movie the movie in a way that. To really get it, you have to you have to watch it. We can't we can't tell you what it is, and you're like, oh, okay, I get it. I don't need to watch that now.
1: Maybe the most impressive thing about this film is um, the the ratio of uh, how few events occurred versus how interested I was. Like the entire time, yeah. I was just interested, and like it draws you in, and it grips you and and takes you. And I don't even think that was like the super um, artsy part of me. Um, partly because I had probably come off of like a 12 hour shift or something. I was super tired um, when I was watching it um, and I didn't have the brain for it, but it just, it just draws you in and uh, you keep watching and you keep watching, even though you, you're left with this ambiguity and nobody holds your hand, like definitely not a handholding film. um, Yeah. And, and not in the
0: same way that upstream color was or something like that, because that movie moved this movie. Uh,
1: Lingered. Drifts. Yeah, lingers. (laughs) Lingers. Yep, lingers in locations. And I I do want to say that part of that, um, part of what makes it so interesting to look at um, and so um, immersive is just the visual style of Tarkovsky, which is... Oh, it's gorgeous. Is is, uh, easily poetic and uh, I would say uh, unique, maybe. I don't want to say weird because weird seems to have like this negative content connotation but it is it is kind of like off it's kind of like yeah dreamy utterly singular almost. um and just his use of um the, the two things that really stuck out to me were his use of texture and his use of sound because you could feel everything and you could hear everything like hear it in your bones when like water was running or somebody swallowed um and like it was really really
0: loud and the te- or a glass is sliding across the table <clears throat> yep uh <laughs> yep no spoilers but yeah we and we have a we have a, a video essay that gets into some of that and really kind of uh does a good job of talking about tarkovsky's poeticism and the way that he gets his ideas across um in probably a much better and more succinct way than uh, we are stumbling through right now. Um, But he really is one-of-a-kind director. I do like that
1: as ambiguous as he is uh, and as poetic as he is and as um, uh, nervous of uh, definition of meaning as he is, uh, he makes the film so watchable so like so so easy to get into so easy to follow even if you're not following on the deepest level you can possibly follow at like they they are like even if you just try to like shy away from the meaning from the the second and all the the symbolism and rhetoric and yada 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 and just like watch the film um like they're just really pretty
0: films to watch um yeah And And they make you like they they stick with you and they make you want to come back to it again and again. And I got the same feeling after I watched Solaris like these films are are packed full of these important things. But in a way that you can't get it in one in one sitting, you have to come back to it and you have to just let it uh, run around your mind for a little bit and just kind of run over. Oh, yeah, that happened. Oh, yeah. These these images are so evocative, but there's so many of them that. You have to take time to process all of it.
1: The same way the stalker is drawn back to the zone over and over and over. Dun, dun, dun. It could be viewed as a meta-commentary on art, but I'm not going to go there. Because, again, it's I think so, because especially some of the...
0: Yeah, but a lot of the conversations with the writers seem to um, imply that. But it's commentary on art, and it's a commentary on the sciences, and mystery, and you know, our capacity for faith and all of these things. There's so much put into this, into this movie.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's definitely worth checking out and who knows, maybe we'll come back and go even deeper in depth with Tarkovsky one day.
0: But okay. Aside from our kind of vague, uh, you know, ramblings about what the movie is about. (laughs) Um, there are some like, like this film was made. So there are some facts that we could talk about with it. Um, which is kind of interesting. It was shot near a um, chemical plant. It uses the the setting of a chemical plant as um, a big portion of it. And you have to remember also that this film comes out ten years before the Chernobyl disaster. And um, if you've heard any similarities between what we've described and the Chernobyl disaster, it's really interesting because uh, you know the zone basically feels like what we now call this radioactive area because there's all these weird things happening and nobody goes there and it's uh, sanctioned off and all this stuff and actually some of the sanitation workers around Chernobyl who work uh, in the area cleaning it up and uh, cleaning the area will call themselves stalkers because of this movie um, and um, also on the film side the there were a lot of outdoor scenes that were shot on a certain Kodak film stock that the Russian film technicians were not familiar with and all of the outdoor scenes were overexposed and developed improperly and completely unusable. So Tarkovsky fired his DP and basically reshot the whole movie almost because of so much of it takes place outside. Um, which is just fascinating. It's one of those things that, you know, making a movie is such a tentative process that, uh, you know, all of these things, aside from the theoretical elements that we talk about a lot in this podcast, so much stuff just happens on set that you can't think of everything ahead of time, but the meaning can still be there um, no matter how the images were were obtained. Lesson... Plus, the chemical <laughs> plant may have <laughs> killed Tarkovsky.
1: It's possible. Either that or the KGB. I, I don't know. I'm not pointing fingers. Not me.
0: Please not me. Nope. Um, There are lots of there are there are probably lots of uh, conspiracy theorists online who can who can take on that job for us. Oh no! Is is Putin listening? Uh oh.
1: Uh oh. We're gonna get banned in Russia. Anyway, with that, let's talk about overall notes. What have we learned about Russian film?
0: Yeah, this is the last of kind of the classic set of filmmakers who had really big impacts and innovations on um the way that our films are still being made so we you know we've looked at surrealism we've looked at the french new wave we've looked at italian neorealism we've looked at german expressionism and even though these uh russian films don't fall into any kind of definable movement um it's actually kind of surprising that there isn't a a name for it because it is uh, a, a bunch of Russian filmmakers in the same area at the same time making a lot of uh, waves in the way that we think about and um, edit and make movies. So these are, you know, fundamental tools. And that's one of the things that we're learning through the world tour is that we would not have the films that we have. We would not have the Hollywood that we have, um, doesn't come about in a vacuum like this film cinema is a global enterprise you know it 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 can't happen in just one place it has to be a lot of minds from all over the world creating things inventing things and sharing those ideas and that's how we get the movies that everyone can enjoy if you get enough really
1: smart people over the course of a 100 years from a lot of different (laughs) backgrounds Put them on a planet, give them some film, shake them around, and apparently add a couple world wars. Although I hope those weren't necessary; certainly affected it. Um, give them, a, uh, set it to whatever degree the temperature is on this planet, and let it cook. And boom, you've got modern cinema. But seriously, like bad jokes aside, you know we we are sitting when when you think about modern filmmaking you it's It's still a baby art it really is like think about how long we've had stories like um if you want to consider like an epic tale like the odyssey a novel or like a book or a longer story then we've had those since forever like we like the ancient greeks were making plays and like there were paintings on cave walls that you know i think the famous ones in france or something like that or maybe that's just ice age i don't know um but you know, cinema's only been around for a hundred years, but it's also been around in the hundred years that we have had the best technology with which to and no pun intended record things and uh keep track of them. And also and as we develop this idea of uh defining uh these these uh the societies that we live in and the movements within those societies. Um, especially certain parts of those societies. So, you know, film came around at like the best possible time to be studied. Like it really did. Um, And and to be studied as a new art form and to be impacted by those who study it and Soviet montage were, you know, or Soviet montage is the name of the technique. I'm using it as an analog for a name of a movement, even though it really wasn't. Um, it, it was the, the first people to really commit to doing that and study it um, and then eventually start making it and
0: then influence other people to do the same. I mean, it's still affecting us. It still affects our movies. And like we said, it's it's so basic. And yet still the techniques are being applied so specifically. Like we talked about with our Edgar Wright week with the Cornetto trilogy um, and now with Baby Driver, everything that Edgar writes like uses montage to the nth degree. Like, would we even have Edgar Wright without Sergei Eisenstein and Lev Kuleshov? Who knows? Because that's <laughs> that is what he's made his career on is cutting the most brilliant and precise montages um, and basically building his whole film on those techniques i mean baby driver is just a big
1: giant purple perf- perfect example of uh rhythmic and tonal montage
0: um and rhythmic montage being you know cutting a montage to a beat so the fact that baby <laughs> yeah. driver is essentially a two-hour music video fits perfectly exactly exactly and these are just ridiculously
1: basic concepts and i think that's uh the you know, all these are really interesting films. All these are really interesting uh, filmmakers this week, and um, the wider context is fascinating as we've been going through uh, the world tour. But uh, we've—I mean, we we've talked some, about some pretty basic things, like even M- mise en scene was really basic. But like yeah. cuts, like you know, putting more than one shot next to another shot and assuming that that creates something greater than the some of its parts is. Uh, It's just so basic like I mean come on like two-year-olds with a phone that they've accidentally taken videos on before or intentionally probably know about this effect like they don't they could not probably verbalize it or uh, comprehend it on like a deeper level or maybe internalize it but you know it's something we've been so exposed to. That it's basically become instinctive for uh, most human beings on the planet who grow up around that. And, you know, it, if you trace it back, it goes back to here. This is when it was defined, and this is when it was started to be consciously used as a technique to impact the message and meaning and uh, experience of cinema.
0: And if you think about the ways that it's being used today, it's almost being used. Um even more specifically today, even though nobody defines it as such. If you think about uh, back when Vine was a thing and Vine comedy essentially was based on the Kuleshov effect because you show one image and contrast it with another one and you have to do it very quickly. So you have to make your images super basic so you get it very, very fast and you fit a couple of those into six seconds and then you have your comedy right there. Or also you think about... The interstellar meme from a couple years ago where you have the sequence of uh, Matthew McConaughey crying at the video of his children growing up and then people would take that and intercut the uh, the Star Wars trailer. And then it changes the meaning of what um, Cooper, Matthew McConaughey's character, is crying about. And that was used for comedic effect. And that's but that's just one example of ways that this is perforated, um, not just The bigger Hollywood cinema, but even the way that now consumers and uh, even even people who aren't in any way trying to be YouTube celebrities or being uh, a a content creator, quote unquote, are using these techniques because it's just such a basic thing. And we understand it so well that it can be applied in the most basic context to get an idea across. And. Even if even if that idea is, I really liked the Star Wars trailer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, fair enough. Yeah, I remember
1: that video. Um, I'll include a link. I didn't. I, I didn't think about it at the time, but it's very true. And to go, let's go even deeper with it, because why not? We're in overall notes. Um, basically, all cinematic rhetoric, everything we do in the cinema to create meaning, comes from the idea that each image we see on screen every shot you could say represents an idea or a theme or a tone and that those uh, individual ideas themes and tones that are carried by each image put together create a larger meaning a larger story a larger theme a larger tone um, and then you go up to scenes and sequences and yada 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 um, and your super trilogies and even films if yeah. you talk about a series yeah, yeah. Um, so so, you know and that, that idea that idea that each image is an idea to be combined and juxtaposed with and contrasted with um, another image comes back to this idea of Soviet montage I mean that's what intellectual montage is is um, the idea that two uh, conflicting images, and by conflicting, I just mean um, that they're not the same image. Like, that's, contrasting. that's all that means. Yeah, they're contrasting images, is that they're not the same. Like, it doesn't have to be fire and ice or um, tyranny and oppression or whatever. It, it just has to be two different images. Um, so so you combine two contrasting images to get a new idea and you combine all of those contrasts and all of those ideas to get a bigger idea and get a bigger feel and get a bigger understanding. Like that's the key to all cinematic rhetoric. And that's the key to um, how we communicate things that cannot be communicated any other way through film. And that that is the most, like I said earlier in this podcast, that is the most basic movie magic that we can experience. And that's been around since like freaking forever, um, over a hundred years. Um, and, and we get to enjoy it and study it and learn it. And this is the first people who are, who noticed it. And I'm glad they
0: noticed it because that gave me a hundred year leap on noticing it. And we haven't even completely covered all of the innovations that Russia brought to the table. Um, we have, the other giant in Russian film is Ziga Vertov, uh, who we couldn't fit in this week cause we wanted to get to, uh, Tarkovsky, but he was back around the time of, um, Eisenstein and, uh, Kuleshov. And he developed a, a theory known as the Kino eye, which is to not present images in the way that the human eye perceives them and not present ideas, um, you know, like showing one after the other, but to combine images in using montage to have people perceive the images in a different way. And that's kind of what we've been talking about. Um, but it's just kind of this, this much broader idea of creating a new perception that only film can bring about. And maybe we'll get to him someday, but that's, that's, uh, you know, there's so much here, um, that these Russian and Soviet uh, filmmakers were able to bring to the table. Um, and this is us covering their chapter in what we now know as just any movie that you ever watch. And if you're going to the movie theater today, you're going to see these techniques. Yeah. If you opened up like YouTube and watched something, you saw these techniques today. Trailers are just montages. This <laughs> is literally just montages. Anything Trying to get the idea of the whole film across any, within
1: two minutes. Yeah, anything that is more than one shot is a montage. And, you know, quick hot take, I'm going to say any, like, significant camera reframe, it could be considered a montage because it comes back to the idea that you're juxtaposing two images. So whether or not it's a cut between two shots or whether or not it's a pan between two, Uh, two images i'd say it has the same effect like you're still juxtaposing the transition is just different um maybe i'm wrong because that's not the technical definition of montage which i think and don't hold me to this is derived from the french word for cut or split or splice or something like that but uh i I think it's also worth worth considering so basically anything you watch is montage
0: I think there's definitely, uh, you know, some discussion that could be had there back and forth. I don't know if there's another technical term for, uh, you know, what changing meaning through reframing is, but there might be something out there that's a little bit distinct for that. Um, But this week we do have some more uh, further watching for you guys that you can find. We try to do further watching where you can find movies easily for free or on Netflix because... We uh, are assuming the ubiquity of Netflix. We apologize if you don't have Netflix. Um, But Mosfilm, as we talked about, is on YouTube. It is in Russian. You can Google Mosfilm YouTube and pull up their channel and then just use Google's translate feature, which is a genius uh, invention of our age um, to find these films. So as I said, there's a lot of Tarkovsky. So I would suggest Solaris after um, Stalker. It's also very atmospheric and thematic, um, but a little bit easier to follow the thread of thoughts and ideas that are coming through that film. Um, And then as far as Sergei Eisenstein, Alexander Nevsky is uh, one of his famous epics um, about the titular character. Um, And then also Man with the Movie Camera, which is Ziga Vertov's Surrealist documentary which you can find on YouTube and I'll include a link to all three of those uh, in the blog post so if you want to watch the films that we talked about today you can find all of those online and also here are some more if you want to really dig into these great films that Russia has brought to the mass canon of film history oh gosh the canon of the globe includes such things
1: as (laughs) Citizen Kane, Battleship Potipkin, and
0: Sharknado Four. Um, but it's a it's a mad world.
1: <laughs> and Donnie Darko.
0: <laughs> um, and the movies that we'll be talking about next week from our next country. Where are we headed to, Alex? Get your K-pop ready, because next week we're <laughs> going to Korea. The first
1: film we're going to check out is Old Boy from 2003. On Netflix. The next film we're going to check out is The Host from 2006 on Netflix. And the last film we're going to check out is The Good, The Bad, The Weird from 2008 on Netflix.
0: Yeah, we've got three very distinct um, categories. We have a, a hard-boiled neo-noir revenge story, an old boy, a good old-fashioned monster flick with the host, and... Some action comedy in The Good, The Bad, and The Weird, as you can imagine. And is this the first week that all three of our films have been on Netflix? I believe it is the first week that all
1: of our films have been on Netflix. So if you've been avoiding following along <laughs> just because you, you can't find some of the movies or they're expensive to stream or whatever, um, this is the perfect week for you because we're assuming that you either have Netflix or you bum it off your family or friends, uh, like most people do. Don't feel bad. Um, no shame. No shame. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, this is the perfect week to follow along. They're all very modern movies. They're all very fresh. Um, and and all very enjoyable in their own distinct
0: ways. And, yeah, an old boy is actually... Often ranks pretty high up on, uh, you know, best films of the last decade or last films of the 2000s or whatever uh, so far. I still don't understand why people are making those lists, but they are. And uh, old boy kind of epitomizes neo-noir. So we will be getting into that next week. Yeah, it's only been 17 years, people. But anyway, <laughs> that's about all the time we have in Russia for now. If you have movie suggestions for us or just want to reach out, I can be found on Twitter at at Satchel. And I'm at Alex Geringer. And to find links to things that we talked about today, you can view them on the blog at thefilmlings.com. If you like the show, let us know. Leave us a review on iTunes so other people will know what we're all about. We definitely appreciate it. Talk to you next week. All right. I will see you in Korea. This is going to be a healthy-sized episode. Some might say it's Russia-sized. That joke was barely acceptable. Oh,
1: gosh. I I didn't have too much time to think about it. I was just Russian. Oh. (laughs) Okay, let's quit Stalin and get on this podcast. All right, Soviet. (laughs) Soviet.